From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, on the line with my longtime co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hello, Aaron. Hello, Max. Hey, you guys. This is, am I correct in that this is our ninth anniversary show? Give or take. Sure. It's like, it's sometime in August. Okay. Allow me that belief, because we've got a big ninth anniversary show coming. I talked to Julie K. Brown, who writes for the Miami Herald. You probably would know her as the person who brought the Jeffrey Epstein story into the spotlight. She has a new book out called Perversion of Justice, which is both the story of Jeffrey Epstein and the story of how she reported it and how she was able to take a story that was kind of dead at that time and bring it back into the spotlight with quite a few twists along the way. We also talked about her earlier career uh, at Philadelphia newspapers and what it was like being uh, dropped into the reporting climate of Florida. That sounds great. I'm so excited we have her on. I feel like when she broke that story, all three of us were like, how can we get Julie K. Brown on the show? And now, and now you've done it, man. It's fantastic. It's a good show to have because uh, this is the first show under a new partnership. Yes, this is, uh, this is big long-form podcast news on our ninth anniversary. We are uh, we are joining Vox. We The long-form podcast is going to be part of Vox. They're going to distribute the show. They're going to sell ads. They're going to uh, promote it to their vast audience of brilliant people across the world. It's super exciting for us. We've been doing this thing on our own for a long time, and uh, and we're really thrilled to be partnering up with Vox. Those people, it turns out, uh, the Vox people, very smart. I think it's worth mentioning that we have been producing the show independently for the last nine years, which basically means uh, Max has been doing all of this work himself. So thanks to him and thanks to all the listeners who kept it going. We wouldn't have been able to do it for this long without a ton of enthusiasm from from the people listening. So. Nine more years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, man, I, if we could go back to like August 2012, if there was some way that I could have like go back in time and just slide a piece of paper across the table to you guys and be like, we'll still be doing this in 2021. Just to see the expression on both of your faces. <laughs> Buy Bitcoin. <laughs> 
thanks to all the good people at Vox for making it happen. And thanks to all of you for listening. And now here's Aaron with Julie K. Brown. Welcome, Julie K. Brown. Thanks for having me. I am sitting here looking at your new book, Perversion of Justice, about Jeffrey Epstein, which I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I've dedicated more of my media hours to this story than at least any other story I can remember during the time we've been doing this podcast. I've listened to the podcasts, I've watched the documentaries, and I have read your book. And the story really starts with you in a lot of ways. But I wonder if we could actually just put that aside for a little bit and talk about your pre-Epstein uh, life. So um, <laughs> where are you from and and what path led you to, to journalism? Well, I'm from a little town outside of Philadelphia called Sellersville, Pennsylvania, uh, and I grew up in a small town. My mother was a single mom with three kids, and I tell a little bit about that in my book about my life, which was a bit of a struggle, you know, and my mom having to work like two to three jobs. And, you know, I ended up working four years between high school and college in order to earn enough money to be able to go to college. So I entered Temple University and I, I became an emancipated minor, which allowed me to get a lot more aid because I had been living on my own for so long. And from there, I just you know, began working in the journalism track. I thought I would be in public relations because I thought that would be more practical than going into journalism because journalism doesn't, you know, you don't make a lot of money. But as soon as I had my first newspaper internship, I realized that there was really no going back that I was going to be in print journalism. What was your perception of journalism and what was it like when you actually arrived as compared to what you thought it would be like? You know, I was a big fan of the Philadelphia Inquirer because I lived outside of Philadelphia and I just studied it. You know, I not only read it, but I studied it. And, you know, at that time, there were reporters for the Inquirer that were winning Pulitzers left and right. They were doing not that they're not doing this now, but even more investigative kind of journalism. And so I sort of worshipped those people. I read, you know, the Washington Post and just studied this kind of journalism. When I first started, of course, I started at a very small weekly newspaper in New Jersey. I wasn't making enough to support myself. So I was waitressing part-time. So I was doing my stories during the week. And then on, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, I was waiting tables, you know, sort of like a starving actor. I was a starving journalist. So it was just hard. You know, you have to really love this work in order to stay in it as long as I have. What kind of stories were you doing during your moonlighting waitress days? What were your uh, journalism hours taken up with during that period of time? Well, to be honest with you, I started out writing obituaries for the weekly newspaper. And although that sounds like, you know, the bottom of the barrel, I learned a lot by writing obituaries because we wrote real stories about people who had passed away. And I learned a lot about interviewing people by calling their relatives and asking them about their lives. And I learned a lot about talking to people who were in grief and just trying to pry interesting details out of people about people that they love. 
and I thought it was a good background for me to have as a journalist. So you moved to the Philadelphia Inquirer. Actually, um, it was the Philadelphia. I moved to the Philadelphia Daily News. Daily News. I wanted to work for the Inquirer more than anything, more than anything. But uh, the woman that was hiring at the time, she was a real hard one to get past. She wanted, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning people there. Uh, it was a little bit of a snobby hiring process, and I didn't make the cut. So I went to the sister paper, which was a tabloid, uh, the Philadelphia Daily News. And I never regretted it because I learned so much there. And I had so much fun working for that paper. It was the best job I ever had, really. It was a really great time in journalism. Writing for a tabloid, I would recommend it to any young journalist at some point in their career to write for a tabloid. I don't know, you just really get on the street more, I think. In Philadelphia, you know, I was in virtually every neighborhood in the city. Coming from, you know, a small town in Pennsylvania, I think it diversified my knowledge of different kinds of people. Did you feel like during that period you got a feel for what made a a juicy story or the kind of story that performs in a, a tabloid environment? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we... You know, it's a different style writing for a tabloid. Uh, you you kind of have fun, a little more fun with stories. Uh, you you relish every little tiny detail. Uh, you learn a lot about writing because you're you are looking for details. It's it's hard to explain. It's just a really clean, fast uh, writing style and pace. Uh, you know, have to be really quick on your feet. Write things very fast. And it, it's just really, I found it to be excellent training for me. Moving from there to Florida, did you start to feel like you were like at a disadvantage in this Florida culture, which, I mean, in the book, you really describe sort of not quite a culture shock, but realizing you were in a very, very different place to be reporting from. To be honest, it was a really huge culture shock. I came from, you know, a big gritty city with a lot of diversity to, you know, South Florida, which is not as diverse. You know, we have a, a lot, we have, you know, of course, a, a Latin population, you know, and there are pockets of African-American, Haitian-American people like that, but it was not the melting pot that, that Philadelphia was. You know, the best way to describe it is if you're in Philadelphia and you're sitting at one end of the bar and a Phillies game is on and the guy at the other end of the bar is is watching by the end of that game, you'll know everything about the guy at the other end of the bar. And Florida just isn't like that. Uh, obviously, I didn't have the history. You know, I didn't know the history of Florida as well. And actually, what I did was I started reading a lot of history books about Florida because, you know, having grown up in Pennsylvania, of course, I knew about William Penn and the Quakers and the founding of Philadelphia and all that and even the politics. But I didn't really know that about Florida. So I actually did some homework about Florida, and that helped a little bit. You know, you just have to learn a whole new culture. It's, it's, it is very transient. You know, my kids would make friends with someone in the neighborhood, and before we knew it, they were moving someplace else. So it was a little bit harder, you know, more challenging to do stories, I think, in Florida because it is so transient. And one of the things that you got attention for, um, you did this series for the Miami Herald about prisons. Tell me about the genesis of that and, and how you went about it. Well, I had been on the investigations team for 
I would say only a year or two before I, and I had some success with the story I wrote, which got international attention about a black man who got arrested at a convenience store where he worked like 150 times and he worked there and it was clearly a group of police officers. This was in a suburb of Miami that were targeting, they were basically targeting everybody that went to the store. It was clearly racial profiling. And I was in the middle of still investigating that story in the police department that had instituted that policy when my editor came to me and said, I have something, you have to drop this story. And I have this case of this inmate at Dade Correctional, which is a Florida state prison all the way in the Everglades. The guards put him in a shower and they turned it up as high as it would go. And they left him there and he essentially burned to death. So, you know, I was in the middle of another story. This is the way it works when you work for a regional local paper. You have to sometimes just segue And I just started working on that story and uncovering exactly what happened in that particular case led me to realize the brutality of Florida state prisons. And so it was just one story after another of the brutality that was happening. And it it kept going for four years. There were just countless stories of the abuse by correctional officials against inmates in the state prison. Some of these inmates, by the way, they weren't all killers or people, uh, not that you know, they deserve to be killed. But there were people that were in for check cashing forgeries who were sprayed so hard with chemicals that they died, you know, and they're in there for for forging checks. And at that time, there wasn't really in in our country in journalism, a prison beat, you know, like this. the, The New York Times was doing similar stories and I that I was doing. So we were both covering the brutality of prisons. And what happened was we I won a Polk Award, George Polk Award, in conjunction with the New York Times for the coverage. And after that, now, if you look around, they have prison beats at a lot of newspapers around the country. But we were, you know, the New York Times and my coverage, I think, spawned a whole series of other reporters looking at their own prisons across the country. What are the challenges of reporting from within a prison? Like even just taking that very first story about an inmate being uh, burned to death in a shower. Who are the sources on something like that? How do you corroborate it? You know, someone who came on the show who was talking about the protests after George Floyd said, you can't trust the accounts of the police here because the police are actually in the story, not neutral sources on the story. So in a closed environment like a prison, where do the facts and the sources come from? Records. We spent thousands and thousands of dollars on records during that series. You know, it was really laborious because we would first have to put a record in for all the inmates that were in that cell block just a list of the inmates that were in that cell block that particular night that whatever incident happened. And then you have to try to find out where those inmates are, and they're probably at various different prisons. Then you have to write them a letter. Then if you hear back from them, you have to ask them to send you a form giving you permission to go visit them at the prison. And it just goes on and on. There's a million steps to it. Like, like just say you hear from someone that, so-and-so Mr. Smith corrections officer did this. You have to ask for all his records and you have to ask for it in a certain way in order to get the records. So in the beginning, 
we were learning all about this. And actually, we had a whistleblower on the inside. He was no longer at that prison, but he was writing us and telling us what to ask for and how to ask for it. So he helped us enormously. And in that particular case about the inmate that was killed in the shower, there were doctors and nurses, for example, that were working that night. So I had to track them down and I got a couple of them to talk to me. And so I told the story through what they saw and what I was able to get from the inmates. There were a couple of corrections officers who we eventually got to talk to us. They wouldn't let us use their names, but they all basically told us what happened. There was very little conflicting information. So we, we knew what we had was really had really happened. Plus the medical examiner in Miami-Dade was still reviewing it, which this was a long time after it happened. And it was mysterious that they hadn't released the autopsy report. So I reached out to the inmate's family, you know, to try to get more information about who he was. And, you know, he was a, a, he was mentally ill and they basically were torturing him. And this was a, a wing of the prison that was for people who suffer from mental illness. And they were basically torturing the inmates. And of course, we got Florida Department of Corrections wanted to stop us at every turn. And we had to keep fighting through that and fighting through that. And I think during the time that I covered Florida prisons, they went through at least four different public information officers because I wore so many of them down until the very end. Now, you, you know, we still have to fight with them, but they know that it doesn't do any good to block us because we're going to keep, keep persisting. How did the Epstein case come to you? Well, I had heard a little bit about it was not familiar with the whole thing. And we had done a series of stories about the women's prison in Florida, which is at the time was the largest in the nation and probably one of the most abusive. And I knew from interviewing the female inmates that sex trafficking was a problem in Florida. And I wanted to do something different. I wanted to move out of prisons. And I joke in my book about, so I picked another cheery topic to take on, which was from prisons abuse to sex trafficking. And every time I started researching sex trafficking, I would run across another uh, story about Jeffrey Epstein. And none of the stories, not that I read a lot, but the ones that I read really explained how this man could commit a crime like this and essentially get away with it, you know. And I was just picking at it, you know, just thinking about doing it. Um, It was... It came up in part because at the time there was a lawsuit. Trump was running for president and there was a lawsuit filed, uh, an active lawsuit, civil case brought by a a woman who um, went by the name Katie Jones, which was not her real name. She had accused uh, Trump of raping her along with Jeffrey Epstein. This was like a a woman that said she, she, both of them had raped her. She filed a lawsuit. It was a federal lawsuit. And she was supposed to, you know, and Trump, you know, was supposed to basically testify. And just days before the election, she was supposed to give a press conference and it just went away. And supposedly she had been threatened and that was it. So I, I was looking at it because I was curious about, well, what happened to this woman? Why did she suddenly decide not to go forward with her law? She dropped the lawsuit. She disappeared. 
And then coincidentally, then Trump nominated Alex Acosta a few months later to be labor secretary. And I knew that Alex Acosta was the former Miami prosecutor, federal prosecutor, who had given Jeffrey Epstein uh, immunity for his crimes. So, you know, at that point, I thought, I wonder what these victims now, 10 years later in their late 20s, think about the fact that this man who let their predator essentially off the hook is now running an agency with oversight of human trafficking and child labor. So my initial goal was just to do a simple interview with the victims. I didn't know when I first started it, it was going to become, you know, the mammoth story that it became because one thing led to another thing led to another thing. And I was aghast and shocked at what I learned from digging into all the records. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Calling all female runners, it's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I remember as the Harvey Weinstein case broke and a bunch of Me Too investigative reporting came out, there became this kind of emphasis in the story of not getting one account, but getting a series of credible accounts 
which in some ways showed a pattern of behavior um, that could be independently corroborated. So if you said that one person was lying, it almost didn't matter because you would have to prove a bunch of people who didn't know each other were lying. For you in this case, as you started to track down Epstein's victims, did you have a a number in mind? Did you have something I need to find this many people, this many accounts that mirror each other in this way? I'm curious how you looked at it because, you know, in the end, it turned out the volume was just enormous. But what was the task a- ahead of you when when you started? In my mind, yes, I wanted to have as many women as I could. And ultimately, it took me a long time. I think it took me six months to get a list together of victims because all their names, of course, they were minors. All their names were redacted from all the documents. And it was a whole process for me to find them. So I did identify about 60 women. And so I set about thinking, God, I got to get all these women or at least 10 of them. And ultimately, I only got four to go on the record. And I was disappointed and, and I was worried that I didn't get enough of them. But then when I interviewed them, their stories were so incredibly compelling, number one. And number two, you know, I had all the records where we had interviews with all these other women that all corroborated each other. And I also realized because he got this deal as part of this deal, there were 34 women that were identified as victims in the court record. So I didn't have to prove that he did it. So Afterwards, I felt that it was even more compelling that I only had four women, even though at the time I thought, well, I don't have enough. You know, I had failed in some way because I couldn't convince other women to go on the record. But ultimately, in hindsight, I think it made the story more powerful that there were only four women. Tell me about the negotiations um, with the women who said yes and the women who declined to go on the record. And What do you tell someone in a situation like that about the stakes of going on and off the record? And uh, something you also bring up in the book is how precarious even doing something like showing up uh, somewhere someone might live would be when someone's father or husband might be answering the door rather than the victim themselves. I started out with the idea of like always knocking on doors. And then a father answered one of the doors and I quickly got out of it and said, sorry, I got the wrong address or whatever. I made some excuse. And then I thought, okay, how am I going to really do this? So I decided to write them all letters. You know, that's why I knew I had 60 because I had to get the 60 addresses. And we're talking about snail mail letters or emails, snail mail letters, old fashioned letters. And I wrote letters explaining what I wanted to do and how I wanted to tell this story differently than it had ever been told before, uh, pointing out that the one thing that's been missing from all the stories that had been written before was their voices, that that people didn't see the victims as victims. I recognize that. And I felt that it was in part because they hadn't given voice, understandably gone public. But I thought maybe now, since they're older, you know, that they might want to finally um, you know, have their, you know, have their say, you know, and, and tell the world exactly how they were treated and how they felt they were betrayed, because that's essentially what it was. They were betrayed not only by Epstein, they were betrayed by the criminal justice system. 
So I, I included a couple of recent clips where Epstein, for example, had tried to get his sex offender status uh, lowered in New York. And I pointed out, quite frankly, that it was very possible that he was still out there preying on underage girls. I mean, this is a disease that he had. So I got a response, just, you know, not many to the letters. Uh, not many came back, though. So I know a lot of women got the letters. I got a, one lawyer sent me an email saying, our clients have informed us that you wrote them letters, do not contact them again, kind of thing. But one young woman, uh, Michelle Licata, who now lived in Tennessee, called me after she got the letter. And uh, she said, we just had a conversation. She said her lawyer told her not to talk to me, but I somehow convinced her, let us come to Tennessee and let us tell her what we're doing. If she didn't want to go on the record, she didn't have to go on the record. She didn't want it. This was the other thing that helped. I think if she didn't want to talk about the abuse that actually happened to her, she didn't have to talk about it because I was focused on the criminal process. Not necessarily. There was really no dispute that he had done this. She was on the list. So we flew to Tennessee, Emily, my Emily Michaud, my videographer and I, not knowing whether we were going to come back with anything because we didn't know whether she would back out. Are there complications in pursuing a story like this where it's happening both at the criminal justice level and then also in the civil level with like a lot of lawsuits? I'm curious, like sort of the distinctions there and what you're able to access in the criminal cases versus the civil cases. Um, at one point you, you talk, I think in the book about a bunch of interviews that, um, basically prove that this happened, but were part of a civil trial, not a criminal trial and therefore were sealed forever. Well, there were different challenges with each of those categories, civil versus criminal, but the one civil case pertained to the criminal case. One of the victims, Courtney Wilde, was suing the Department of Justice because of how they had handled the criminal case. And her lawyer, Rad Edwards, really did a brilliant job of getting records pertaining to the criminal case, including emails that went back and forth between the prosecutors and, and Epstein's high-powered lawyers. So he had unearthed a lot of new information. And by the way, he had brought some of this information to other media people who never really did anything with it. And the case was still open. It was 10 years old. The case was 10 years old. So I had that to go through. And there were five over 500 docket entries in that case. Some of those docket entries in of themselves had dozens of exhibits. So... I thought, you know, this is not going to be that hard. I'll pick the motion for summary judgment, the main complaint, you know, a couple other documents, and I'll be able to put this story together, no problem. But it was much more complicated than that because there were other civil lawsuits. There were also, we did get a little bit of FBI files, a lawyer in New York who worked for one of the tabloid websites had sued to get the FBI files. I'd like to give him credit, Dan Novak, because he did that. I didn't. But the FBI was forced to put some of their files on their website called The Vault. But nobody else noticed that this was happening. The point that I'm trying to make here is if I picked up one document that was in one case, it would refer to something that I saw in another case, or it would 
say something about the FBI. And I would say, oh my gosh, I saw something like that in the FBI file. So it was this big puzzle that you really couldn't put together unless you read everything. So I quickly came to realize this was not going to be a thing where I could just cherry pick little things from each case file and put together a story. I had to really study almost everything that was public. For people who are listening, who aspire to do these kind of investigations, but haven't done one, you know, whether it's the prisons or it's Epstein, when you're sitting in your apartment with literally boxes of court documents, how do you organize a project like that? And I wonder if you could give any advice to someone who's got 10,000 pages ahead of them, how to make sense of that starting from zero. You know, I learned I from, you know, trial and error to really be organized from the get go. Otherwise you'll be sitting there when it's deadline and not know where the documents are. I kept the documents that I knew would be important for the story on clipboards so that I could just reference them. For example, you know, the plea deal itself, the plea agreement. I knew I was going to have to refer to that a million times, so I kept it on the clipboard. So there were a bunch of clipboards that had the most important documents. And then I had to just basically, um, a lot of this stuff, because it was from 2008, it wasn't really digital, so I couldn't download it on my computer. I could copy it. And I, I did, and it was a lot of paper again. And I just organized it in binders and folders and file boxes. You know, I had a whole file box that was called victims. And I tried to find out everything I could about, you know, I had 60 in there to start, and then I got more. And for each, I had a file for each victim. Some of the files said Jane Doe 3. I didn't find out who Jane Doe 3 was, you know, so that was just Jane Doe 3. There were a lot of civil lawsuits, so let's just say one of the lawsuits, Jane Doe 3 filed a lawsuit. I pulled that lawsuit and I put it in her file. So it's just really important to stay, you know, especially with this case, it was really important to stay organized. And, you know, in writing the book, I kind of, you know, I'd moved during the pandemic. We no longer had a newsroom. So I had moved all my files from, you know, I worked from home just so everybody would leave me alone. <laughs> and then I moved them back to the newsroom when the case broke because then I was working in the newsroom again. And then I had to move them all back to my apartment after the COVID hit. So I sort of got a little bit disorganized. So I had to reorganize myself when I went to write the book because everything was all over the place. With a story that's going off in so many directions at once, you've got Acosta and the plea deal, You've got the victims, you've got flight logs and private islands, you've got an enabling group of wealthy and successful scientists and business people and lawyers. How did you choose where to put your focus at a given period of time? I know this stuff is all overlapping, but as one human being with a, a limited number of hours in the days, how did you prioritize in your reporting of this case? That was one of the biggest challenges, I think, of, of the whole entire project. I would hear something about his connection to Bill Gates. Am I going to go down that rabbit hole or am I going to stay with this rabbit hole? And I quickly realized I wasn't going to be able to do that all. I had to have four corners to the story and keep my eye on the ball, which was the victims 
who had never spoken before. The police chief and the lead detective, I felt, were very key. They don't get enough attention, I think. But they were very, very integral to my story. They had never spoken publicly before. And not, and the police chief went on camera, which was huge. And just the prosecutors and the defense lawyers. And I just had to, like I said, I had to draw four corners around this. I didn't go into Bill Clinton. I didn't go into Donald Trump in the, in the original series. Of course, my book, I was able, because you have more space in a book, I was able to round that out with all the other information about Katie who filed that civil lawsuit and uh, I have a chapter on her and, you know, I can add all that extra stuff in, in a book, but for the series itself, I just didn't have the time or the space. Editor's not going to wait forever. So I had to draw a line somewhere. So the series was very limited. And what I say is the book uh, is a lot bigger and that it goes into more of his connections, more of the people in his circle, more about how the lawyers and the prosecutors almost worked in tandem to make this case go away. Could you feel Epstein's lawyers and people in his world sort of maneuvering behind the scenes as you did your reporting? Like, were they aware of what you were doing and, and trying to stop you? No, it was like they didn't care. You know, obviously I reached out to them many times. We even went to Epstein's house and knocked on the door. We knew he was there and he didn't come out. At the end, I sent certified letters, snail mail letters to everybody, you know, every lawyer, every house, to his house in Palm Beach, to his home in New York, uh, to all of his attorneys. And for the most part, I mean, Dershowitz was really the only lawyer that responded and he was worried about how he was going to be painted in the story. He didn't ask any questions about how Epstein was going to come across. So I just think his lawyers just thought, you know, other stories had been written about Epstein over the years. And my guess is they just thought it's just another story and nobody's going to read it and it's not going to be a big deal. Although I will say after the series broke, uh, Emily and I were feeling less safe because we knew that now they were, you know, that Epstein's people were watching us and probably investigating us. We were keenly aware we were probably being followed. Some weird things started happening immediately. Emily had a van parked in front of her house for days on end, finally called the police. The guy said he was a private investigator, but he claimed he was working another case in the neighborhood, you know. So it was it was a lot to grasp at the time, but I tried my best to keep my eye on the ball, so to speak, that we pressured enough people in the right places so that they, you know, reopened the case, essentially. As you published this initial series, pretty quickly, uh, reporters from all over the country started to jump on the story. The New York Times wrote about it. Reddit caught fire. So there was a whole amateur sleuthing world going on. How did that change things for you? And what was it like sort of staying with this story from the early days when you were pretty much on it alone to it becoming the most crowded story in the country, probably? That was really a crazy, crazy time for me. Um, you know, no reporter wants to be a part of the story. And I was almost a part of the story there. And I was very uncomfortable. I, I, I don't like doing TV at all. But the one thing that I know is that 
they, authorities weren't going to do anything about this unless it stayed in the news and that there was pressure. And I thought the only way to do pressure was to continue to write stories and to be in their face by going on TV. So I took advantage of the fact that I am sort of, you know, a part of this story in the hope that it would pressure authorities to do something about it. And it was a balance because I was trying to write more stories, which I did. Uh, fortunately, the Herald brought in some other reporters to help me with these stories. Because, again, we had the New York Times, Washington Post, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS. Everybody was on the story. And it couldn't be my story alone anymore. And, you know, I'm a very competitive reporter. So at first, it's disconcerting because it's sort of your baby. And all of a sudden, somebody else is taking your baby away from you. So, you know, you have to kind of put that in aside because the more important story was getting justice for these girls. And that was always my goal. So when you think about that, the more reporters that work on it and get more information, you know, I wasn't based in New York. I didn't have the sources in New York. I was always quite frankly surprised that the New York media didn't really examine what he was doing at his mansion up there. I worked a little bit with the newspaper that's in the U.S. Virgin Islands because I'm not based there. So I called that newspaper to see, you know, if those reporters wanted to work with me. I sort of began to embrace the fact that other journalists were doing this story because I, I there's just no way that I could do it all by myself. When you made your pitch initially to those victims, I assume that you were able to discuss your own intentions and, and how you would handle it. How did that get complicated as you ceased to be the only reporter on the story and the reporting you had done got like put into this giant stew? Did things that you had sort of promised the victims about how you would handle the case get undermined ever as the case became a many, many, many journalist TV documentary podcast kind of story? Well, I stayed in close contact with the victims. I, I spoke with them right after the series ran and it exploded. I recall having a conversation with a couple of them to be prepared. There were going to be people knocking at your door. And um, I, I couldn't predict that it was going to grow like that, that the story was going to mushroom like that. So I can't really blame myself, but, you know, in hindsight, they, I'm sure they went through a lot more than they than they wanted or they got more than they bargained for. I think ultimately, though, they didn't know each other before this story. They all really connected. And, you know, they're friends on Facebook together and they're sharing pictures of their children together. And I think that they bonded and became stronger because of it. One of the things that I found interesting about the book that I, I actually didn't see coming was how much you talk about the sort of media story behind the story. You talk about your editors and conflicts within the newsroom and, and sort of what's happening behind the scenes to, to produce this kind of work. I wonder if you could tell me about that decision and, and why you decided to sort of pair the Epstein saga with what you were doing um, as a reporter to get that. And, and also your personal life is in the book. Um, really, it's a it's a memoir of the time that you spent chasing Epstein. Well, one of the things that happened in the chaos of, in the aftermath of the series running was that I had heard from 
so many people, you know, just regular Mrs. Smiths were sending me letters, you know, journalists rarely ever get fan mail, but I would come home from a trip to New York and my desk would be covered with letters and flowers. And, you know, they would send me little Starbucks gift cards and things like that. And, you know, it was sort of astounding to realize how much people really had a hunger for this kind of journalism and how much they appreciated it. And this was also around the time that the president, Donald Trump, was putting journalists in a very bad light, you know, calling us enemies of the people. And so when I wrote this book, I thought, I don't think journalists do a good enough job of explaining how we do what we do and what we, the kind of sacrifices that we often make and the challenges we have. We don't want to be part of the story, so we don't tell that part of the story. And I do think it's important for the public to understand that, that because we're real human beings we suffer through, you know, the trauma of things. You know, we have our own families to balance in, in the midst of this crazy kind of career. I thought it was important to share that with the public because I thought maybe people really need to understand that we're not doing this, you know, for the money, obviously, and we're not doing it for the fame. We're doing it. I really, I, I mean, I had one journalist kind of make fun of me because I said something about not winning the Pulitzer Prize, that I was fighting for something that I felt was more important, which was justice. And he kind of laughed at that. And I thought, but that was really what I was after. I really never set out to win a big prize with this story. I didn't even think that it would explode at all. I thought it would disappear after a day. I thought if if just one little piece of justice comes out of this, I would be happy. I honestly felt that way. It was not about prizes or I never did any of my work for prizes. You're always grateful when you get them. I remember one year I won a prize. It was pretty, I won't say which one because I'm, I'm embarrassed to say when I got it, I had to Google what it was because I never paid any attention to all these different journalism prizes. I just did my work and very grateful that, you know, it was recognized by a lot of different people, but that's not why I ever did what I do. One of the parts that I found very interesting, I mean, I was surprised to learn that there had been hesitation to assign you the story in the first place, not in the sense of it's a bad idea, but that it sounded like your editor just didn't really see it going anywhere or going somewhere that he was interested in. But you talk about yourself being an editor and that editors have conflicting agendas, you know, that whatever you just described as sort of your highest ideal as a reporter may not be an editor's highest ideal because they work for someone and they have a, a different job. When were you an editor and what did you learn as, as an editor? Oh my God. It's, it's so, it's so hard to be an editor. It's really hard. You know, when you're a reporter, you're very selfish, <laughs> you know, it's all about you. But when you're an editor, it's about everything but you. It's about, you know, you have so many bosses to make happy. It's just really tough. I mean, I wasn't a great editor. I, I, I was much, always much better reporter than I was an editor. You've got to pressure reporters to do things sometimes they don't want to do. And that's not easy. And um, my editor, Casey Frank, and I, you know, we had been together for almost my entire career at the Herald. We, I worked for him and 
you know, we've just had our ups and downs. It's almost like a office marriage, you know, where just sometimes you don't get along, you know, and I put a little bit of that in the book and it wasn't to disparage him. It was to be honest and to, to let people know that, that it's, you know, as one of my colleagues say, there's always a lot of blood on the floor when you're doing a big series like this. And there is, it's just hard. You argue and you fight and, you know, over the, sometimes the dumbest things. And, you know, I, I talk about how I was sometimes in the back closet, the back issues closet, crying on the phone to Emily, who was on the other side of the newsroom, but I didn't want anybody to see me crying. You know, it, especially this story, it was a very traumatic story to write about. It was hard. You have to bring your editor along because they're doing 10 different things. It's unrealistic to think that they will buy into a story from the get-go. You have to bring them along. And one of the really good things about Casey, my boss, is he really does try to take the time to go and dig through the all these records. I mean, he really does read them. I, I would put them in front of him. He would take them home and he would come back the next day and say, oh, my God, I can't believe that that happened. So I did bring him along. It wasn't that he was opposed it. It was just that he he was skeptical. We were we were all skeptical that anything would come out of this. Does doing the book let you put this story to bed a little bit? What uh, what are you doing now? I guess is the question. Well, I really would like to take some time off, to be honest with you. I'm pretty exhausted, but I'm still getting records. Let's put it that way. I have some new records that I just got yesterday, so I'm going to have to go through them. I'm still, you know, I haven't let go of the story. I keep talking to Casey about, let's follow, you know, this. And, you know, it sounds so great until I get another pile of Epstein records or tips, and then I go back. So I'm still working on it for all intents and purposes at this moment. Thank you so much for this interview. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Nine full years of the Long Form Podcast. That's another one, but it's our first one with Vox. Thanks to them. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor, Jackie Sajiko, and our intern, Susan Peterson. Uh, Thanks to everyone over at MailChimp. Big thanks to them. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.